Because if I had two themes to put on my tombstone, it would be learn from every person and teach your tongue to say, I don't know. Because that's a beautiful balance of learning and humility. On In Good Faith, we believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So join us to listen, learn, and be amazed. Today on In Good Faith, we are bringing you two guests who talk about not just how to do interfaith work and philosophy, but why it's actually really helpful. And I'm excited to introduce you to Wendy Goldberg and Rabbi Joe Charnas. Today I'm with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And with Ashton Rowan. Hi, Steve. And tell me about finding these folks. Yeah, so with Wendy Goldberg... Um, we originally found out about the Tri-Faith Initiative because there was a representative at the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago, and I thought we had to learn more. Well, I'm excited. Wendy Goldberg is the executive director of the Tri-Faith Initiative, an interfaith organization that houses a mosque, a synagogue, a church, and an interfaith center, four separate buildings, all on one campus in Omaha, Nebraska. In addition to running this, Wendy was also on the board of trustees for Temple Israel Synagogue, the Jewish congregation in the organization for over a decade. It's important to note that this interview was taped October 16th. So that was just 10 days after Hamas invaded Israel and killed 1,400 people and took 240 people hostage. And it was just a weekend or just after a weekend of numerous airstrikes from Israel on Gaza that killed over 2,500 Palestinians. And as we speak today at the beginning of 2024, to date, 22,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces in retaliation. And that will come up in the interview. Yeah. So you're going to start with Wendy, and she's going to tell us how this whole initiative got started. It's 20 years in the making, and it's an experiment in proximity. It's also an experiment in fostering trust and deep relationship so I'll tell you how we got started. This congregation of Temple Israel was established in 1871. We have a deep history in Omaha, and we know that our founders were in relationship with Standing Bear. So being in relationship with the religious other is culturally normative for us. In addition, following 9-11, some members of our synagogue went to a local mosque to stand in solidarity with our Muslim brothers and sisters to say, no harm should come to you on this moment that other people use similar vocabulary in different ways should be associated with you in any way. And out of that grew relationship and picnics and potlucks. And then when Temple Israel was looking to move west in Omaha towards where the growth of Omaha had been established and many of our members had moved, we were looking to acquire a piece of land and decided what if we knew who our neighbors would be, we could acquire a parcels that were being sold in larger uh, quantities than we could use for our own purpose. And we went to some of these friends we had made in the Muslim community and said, we know you're thinking about creating a mosque to meet the needs of your community that is also in Western 
and part of Omaha, would you like to look for land with us? The meeting that happened between some of the members of the synagogue and the Muslim community looking to establish a new community or congregation, they met at a public library as a kind of neutral ground. And um, they both brought food offerings because it's customary to be radically hospitable in both the Jewish and, and Muslim tradition. As they sat and deepened their relationship with each other and got to know each other a little more even in that setting, they learned that in Omaha, which is half a million people or more, that they both have fast days, but they use the same caterer in their families to host the break the fast. So I think that reminds us that you can choose every day in your life. Are you going to lean into what is similar about you or what is different? And we have come to learn that both are important. There are times in which our similarities bring us closer, but our differences allow us to move forward. I think that's beautiful. You served on the board of trustees for Temple Israel Synagogue for a decade. And that gives you a particular insight into one of these groups. Were there any worries or any reasons people thought, will this take away from our own mission and our own work if if we're doing this other interfaith connection? What I'll say is autonomy matters. What we've learned is that it's important that we realize that each of these congregations, and I'll I'll speak first from the lens of the um, congregation that I was a leader, as we moved to a new location, our first priority was making sure that we have a vibrant congregation to be able to sustain Reform Judaism in Omaha, Nebraska. Mission number one. And we need to honor mission number one, and that we need to honor that our faith partners, our founding faith partners and other faith partners have a similar objective, right? Vibrant congregation. And that each of the spiritual leaders and lay leaders who help to advance that goal have to wear that hat first. However, we believe that it is core to the principles of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam to love your neighbor to be in relationship with your neighbor and to honor that we do things sometimes the same and sometimes differently. Right. You know, that, that, you know, there are people who are very comfortable with the many names of God. In, in Islam, they recite 99 names of God with intention. That's part of their culture and practice. In Christianity, there's a little less room for that. And how do we make space for someone to see their religious tradition through a multiplicity of lenses. We look at belief, behavior, belonging, becoming, and body, meaning that it's not only about theology, that we appreciate that people care about the belief structure, but we're looking for rituals in order to connect then to community that we're all seeking something bigger, but part of the what's bigger is the belonging part, and that people's religious identity shifts and changes over the scope of their lifespan. For me, I was born into the conservative movement of Judaism, but I chose the reform denomination of Judaism as an adult. Many people marry and and shift between religious identities. As the religious landscape is shifting, do my children want their grandmother's version of religion? That's all impacting our ability to be in relationship with each other. And so the 
this becoming part. And then body, how do other people look at you? If you wear a hijab, if you wear a head covering, what are the the judgments that we make about people because of their um, color of their skin and whether or not they fit in or or not in a community? And, and all of those things are part of how we relate to each other and to ourselves and to what is bigger than any of us. I love this picture. And I'm, I'm picturing each congregation, whether it's for the Juma or, or Shabbat service or a Sunday church service. Is there something different in those services, knowing that you are in close community and proximity in a relationship with those other denominations or faiths? The answer is a definite yes. And it's even further than you might realize is that we, in this autonomy, we appreciate that we want to maintain the integrity of our separate identities, but we have to honor also that we might have a visitor or a guest who's in the house from one of our neighbors, and mm. which is often the case. That if we have permeable walls and we are able to move between these four organizations with not only freedom but love, then it could be a regular occurrence where someone in the pews was not of that religious tradition. And there is an opportunity for holy envy. And the question is not necessarily whether or not you are welcoming as the host. The question is, can you be a good guest? Mm. And honor the tradition you are visiting. And, and honor people. the tradition you're visiting. Yeah, that's beautiful. What impact does that have, not just on the congregations, but the wider community? Can you assess that? So we would say, especially in the last couple of years, as we've come to unpack racial reckoning and a privileging of one religious group, perhaps over others, that it's important for us to to appreciate that this conversation cannot only happen between religious communities. This conversation about equity and inclusion is happening in for-profit, in non-profit, in the faith communities. It's happening at university and seminary. And so if we intend to have that conversation across sectors, we decided we needed to be the convener. So we just hosted our second annual Race, Religion, and Social Justice Conference, and it is across those sectors. So we convened 500 people this last year to come and have a conversation about race, religion, and justice and invite presenters from across the country to do the same. And it's fascinating to listen to not only people's difference in, in their understanding of religion and race depending on their sector, but how we invite conversations between those sectors. And from those create collaborations because we can everything we can do, we can do better together. I would love to be in one of those meetings. I'm glad to know about the fact that that happens. Something that I'd like to notice about that is the opportunity to raise the voices of the marginalized or underserved. And I'm saying that in a moment following incredible disruption in the Middle East. Yes. And I'm a Jewish woman telling you that I think we need to uplift the voices of Muslims in the United States, right? Now, that means that I have 20 years of experience in being in relationship and close proximity to the Muslim community, and I have a very healthy curiosity about what is different and beautiful about that. And at the same time, I can say what is happening in the Middle East is messy and ugly, just the ugliest side of, of humanity, and that 
What we can do here in the United States, in Omaha, Nebraska, is to know our neighbors. And as a matter of fact, this weekend, one of my closest friends in the mosque attended the rally for Palestine. I attended the rally for Israel. And on Saturday, went to lunch, and we brought our moms to meet each other. Wow. Yeah. Peace is possible. One relationship at a time, even in the middle of a global catastrophe. And so helpful to to not instantly polarize completely in a black and white way, all or nothing. And uh, as you recognize, the ugliest parts of humanity are, are brought out in conflicts like this. It sounds to me like you're saying you have been changed over those 20 years. Can, can I ask about that personal effect? A couple of things that I think Judaism has to offer the world. We debate. We, we love to turn a conversation and not intend to agree at the end of the day. That's what the rabbis are famous for, right? And so that was just part of my childhood is just like, just get into it. Just be able to look at it from all sides, not wrong or right, just learning, just being curious. So that's something that I offer the experiment that we're doing. And at the same time, Judaism invites doubt. The word Israel means to wrestle with God. So I get to be public and say, you know what? I might not be the most observant Jew, but I appreciate my religiosity and I might struggle with the word God. However, there's not a day that goes by that even in my own 58-year-old version of struggling with God, that I don't have an encounter that seems supernatural to me, that, that feels like, wow, if I felt that there was actually, you know, a, a God that controlled the chess pieces here, she would choose for me to be having this conversation in this moment, and other people might be really comfortable calling this encounter God. And that has invited me to just get a little more comfortable with that, to look at that and say, like, let go, be open to what the next thing that comes, whether that's the challenge of COVID, as an example. We, we had a meeting of our board, our staff, and our clergy on March 10th of 2020. At that meeting, I was named executive director. They passed a strategic plan, and everyone in the room was exposed to COVID because we had patient zero in Omaha, Nebraska, in our room with us. Oh, boy. We were scheduled to have an in-person event six days later that was canceled. We pivoted and we had a virtual event two weeks later, and we had 1,006 people come from an international audience. These are intensely beautiful, powerful moments that I don't know the why, but if I can just look for the silver lining in both the grief and the lamentation of our work and in these sparks that are divine. Are people surprised to find out that Omaha, Nebraska is where this is happening? Because I think from outside, we may think this is not where people are forced to rub shoulders or jostle up against each other like in a New York subway. And yet this seems to be the very place it's happening. I think a lot of is possible in Nebraska and particularly Omaha. Omaha is very generous. We have an incredible philanthropic community. And I believe it's a place, especially for bricks and mortar, where if you dream it, you can find the people who will believe in it with you. At the same time, I'm not sure if you know this, but the demographics of Nebraska mirror the United States. We have the urban-rural divide. We have the red-blue divide. We have the identity demographics that 
almost exactly mirror the rest of the United States. And so a piece of hope that I would give to your listeners is if this work that we're doing in Omaha, Nebraska, if we can understand what the magic of it happening to bridge difference is, it's replicable and scalable. Yeah. What do you advise people who say, how do we do this? First is start with trust. You know, I think most people talk about earning trust. And I invite people to open their heart with compassion to say, I believe in the humanity of our ability to come together. And we have to start there with that open heart. Then we need to have autonomy. The importance of valuing what is different about us as beautiful and something to celebrate. That there are multiple paths, that if this God that everyone globally has such admiration for is actually as magnificent as is told in our sacred books, then that God doesn't know the human limitations that we put on that word. So let's just open ourselves to the magnitude of celebrating what is different about us and give us room to be autonomous in our relationship to each other and to what is bigger than all of us. And then to understand it's messy. It's gonna be messy. (laughs) And just know that. People are messy. Institutions are messy. And faith and faith traditions can be beautiful in the mess. And individuals can be broken. We are all carrying more than we have the ability to carry right this minute. How do we greet each other with grace and mercy in order to be in this messy relationship that is our life? And finally, to not reduce any person or religion. Religion is not a monolith. I am speaking to you as a woman, as a mother, as a gardener, as a yogi, and also as a nonprofit leader and as a Jewish person. And on different days, I prioritize different parts of my identity. And let's make room for that. Let's appreciate that we're all going to relate to religion differently and that that's okay. And it's part of the beauty of the spectrum of understanding life. I just want to pause and say, amen. Besides a mosque, a synagogue, and a church, we mentioned an interfaith center. Is that a separate mm-hmm. building? So and- it is a fourth building and a fourth partner. We call the four buildings together the Trifaith Commons. Our work is obviously this first project of co-location, to foster interfaith relationships and understanding at 132nd on Street in Omaha, Nebraska. But about 60% of the people who participate in our work or support us financially are not a member of one of those three congregations. As I mentioned, our influence is national for certain and global at best. And there is an opportunity for every single person who is on this call to be part of the work that we are doing. Everyone, regardless of your religion or none, have a place in our work in advocating for the advancement of interfaith relationships and understanding. We all desperately need in this time of conflict to see and hear and know each other. And we are modeling that and we want everyone to feel that there is a place and a space for them. I'd love you to come to our programs, but more than anything, I need you not to be a bystander 
at the rise of religious intolerance and hate, when you see anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or bigotry to the black church or the Native American experience or all of the other isms that are out there that are the message of hate, I ask you to stand up, to report. If you see something, say something. And to believe that hate does not have a place, especially among those who are faithful. That's difficult for people to do because they're uncertain how they'll be received. Do you have examples of times where people have have stood up in a difficult situation and, and effected change? That's such a lovely question. This week, um, I have been called upon to walk between more than one community. And I struggle with the questions of where those lines are between standing with my community and my affinity group and standing with humanity. And will we find the bravery to be accountable for all of humanity? And I say that because it's easier for us to lean into those similarities and see the pain as Jewish people for those suffering in the state of Israel at the hand of Hamas, for sure. That is something easy to condemn. It's egregious. It's, It's... Disgusting. And how do we, with compassion, look at the situation in Israel for the Palestinian people? And how do we open ourselves to say, what are the situations and the realities, the systems and structures that got us to this place? And if we could get a redo, what would we have redone? And if we don't get a redo, what can we do now? I am so grateful that... I have friends who are willing to say to me this week, how do I send humanitarian aid to the people in Gaza? We have to learn how to walk between and hold more than one truth in order to see us all as created in the image of God. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Hi, Stephen Cap Perry here, host of In Good Faith. Here's another podcast from our BYU Radio family of podcasts I hope you'll check out. What I love is real. You know that saying, real, recognize, real? That's Lisa on The Lisa Show. Lisa Valentine Clark is a comedian. She's a believer, a single mother. And on The Lisa Show podcast, you'll hear from the Council of Moms, a genius idea, which is actually one of my favorite parts of her show. And you'll hear about the challenges of life, parenting, mental health questions, social issues. Yes, you'll hear from experts, but also from people discussing their where the rubber meets the road life experience. It's The Lisa Show, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I'm speaking today with Wendy Goldberg, who is the executive director of the Tri-Faith Initiative in Omaha, Nebraska. You mentioned that created in the image of God, right out of Genesis, and seeing the sacredness or holiness in others. Do you see in each of these different services and congregations, maybe ears perk up a little on those scripture readings, whether from the Torah or the Quran, Old and New Testament, when those types of phrases come up? I wonder if if people light up a little with them instead of just letting it pass over them like this phrase we've heard all our lives. 
You know, I've heard multiple people over the 20 years be able to say, you know, I can pray in in more spaces than I could before, that, Mm. you know, I can be Jewish and find sacred in sitting in the church. For me, the theology lands less gently on me than the behavior part. Um, Uh. And so I can find holy envy in particular when I watch my Christian friends take communion, like just understanding what that means they are accepting in their lives, I just have some holy envy for. Not, I'm not looking to add a different religious tradition. I'm, I'm happy with the one that I have. But I still can look at my partners and friends and see awe and wonder. And probably the most magnificent experience that I have is witnessing a woman um, at the mosque wash in preparation for prayer and then to hold her hands out to accept and submit. Not easy things for me. Accept and submit. Like, <laughs> ugh, you know, I'm a strong woman. Like, I, I have a hard time with that. And then I can talk to a friend about her choice to wear a hijab and to keep the intimacy of her hair, which is a very intimate thing, to keep that between her and her husband. Like, if that's her choice, I think that's beautiful. Not for me, for her. And so those are the places that I don't know that it's the scripture that calls it to me. But when I see people who experience in all of its fullness awe and wonder and choose acts in their lives with intention to appreciate that, I think, as you said, uh, amen. (laughs) I'd like to read a quote from an interview from uh, religionnews.com. They're quoting you. Religious pluralism is celebrated when people of diverse religious communities and worldviews defend each other's right to thrive and maintain distinct identities while engaging in beneficial ways. This is not just a nice idea. It is critical to the health of our democracy. So this isn't just faith. This is the very society that we live in. You are having an effect on, a positive effect. So thank you. You're welcome. I think it's probably the most important thing to appreciate, celebrate, and support for the future of our democracy. That was Steve speaking with Wendy Goldberg about her Tri-Faith Initiative and her incredible commitment to interfaith work. One thing that I really appreciated about Wendy's interview was how committed she is to leaning into similarities and finding peace among different groups. I love what she said about peace is possible even in the face of a lot of history and very current and recent events. And I thought it got so really basic when she she just, as a throwaway line says, we discovered that the mosque and the synagogue used the same caterer for breaking our fasts. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, okay, there's a community connection right there and something both congregations can relate to. So I really appreciated that she didn't just say we need to do better with each other, but but that she talks about, it's not just love your neighbor, okay, I won't say anything bad about those other people. She said, you have to be in relationship with your neighbor. She kept using this word autonomy. And as a former academic who wrote and researched about women in religion, we often don't allow women autonomy in religion. If a woman is choosing the hijab, we give them the respect and dignity to assume that someone who's practicing a religion has chosen that for really good reasons. 
and that they have a connection with God that they're trying to support. And I just love that she told that story about the woman in the mosque who was performing these rituals about submission and how those were important to that woman, and she was going to support that woman's practice. Well, if I am ever going through Omaha, Nebraska, and sometime (laughs) I might, I want to be sure and stop in and see the Tri-Faith Initiative, the, the campus and the buildings there. Also tied in with Interfaith is our next guest, uh, Rabbi Joe Charnas, and you met him in person. Yes, I did. I met Rabbi Charnas, or Joe as he would have me call him, in one of my classes here at BYU, and he was visiting from California. And the reason he was here in Utah was to attend General Conference in Salt Lake City, which for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a semi-annual gathering of adherents and, and leaders where inspiring talks are given, and it's just a a weekend of spirituality and gathering and listening. And he was here as a member of another faith, obviously, to participate in that, which I thought was beautiful. So I went up and I spoke with him after class, and he was very kind and willing to come on the show and give us his thoughts. And he's certainly someone who could be teaching these classes. He's a rabbi. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from California State Northridge. He studied traditional Jewish seminaries in Los Angeles, California, Brooklyn, New York, and Jerusalem was ordained by Rabbi Mordecai Finley, Ph.D., of the Academy for Jewish Religion in California, and his teaching center around recovering and encountering the inner dimension of sacred Jewish wisdom. This idea of wisdom, he brings up a lot, and I'm excited to hear and share how he talks about not just holding it in your head, but how it has to be lived, or it's not really wisdom. Yeah. And he's going to open with a discussion of his childhood and how he was taught uh, the Jewish religion. And it's something we've heard before from other of our Jewish guests, right? This idea of identity and culture, but not necessarily of divinity. And how he's going to go on a journey. We didn't grow up in a particularly observant household focused on divine interaction or connection or service. We grew up more, this is probably a, a, a different discussion, but there, there's, there's an aspect of the Jewish community that has a Jewish reference and a Jewish heart, but they've developed a very different way of, of, of living outside of what would be the normal parameters of Jewish law. But they, they, they raised me as a Jew, but not, not as an observant Jew, a, a practicing Jew, a kosher Jew, a holiday-observing Jew, but a Jew aware that he was a Jew and who had a, a good reason and purpose and meaning for being Jewish. And over the years, I moved much more into a formal-oriented or a form-based practice of Judaism. That, that also includes the, the inner dimension of the awareness of the sacred in life and among our human, our fellow human beings. What did you feel drawing you? What was it that, that pulled you in that direction or made you seek that? I received a lot of information about hmm. rather than the reason why or the reasons behind or the reasons within. And so I began looking at philosophy, which ultimately the root word itself deals with the love of wisdom. 
I studied philosophy in, in, in college to understand the different philosophies. But I then began to look into the philosophy of, of my own soul, of my own history, of my own faith community. And I worked slowly into that world of wisdom and then began to live that wisdom in life because wisdom of mind or wisdom of heart in Jewish thought is not the end or the goal or the purpose of wisdom. It's to live a life filled with that wisdom as you engage with your fellow human being. That's how wisdom must be manifested in life. So that's how it started off with essentially in one form, nothing as far as practice and deep awareness of the inner dimension of Judaism. And through the study of wisdom, my own soul was awakened to the call of wisdom from my own distant past. And I answered that call. And I listened to many other voices of wisdom too. But that was the, I think, the, the moment where I said, like in Isaiah, when God asks Isaiah, whom shall I send? And he says, Hineni, right? Here I am, send me. Send me. So send me to myself. I'm listening to the call and I'm open to see where it leads me. That's a really beautiful idea of even the purpose or the concept of wisdom. Mm. Within the community, what is it, whether it's ritual or, or interaction, that connects you with the divine? The divine, in, at least as I understand it, and I think this is, it's not how Judaism literally says it, but I'm just expressing the idea. Judaism doesn't have one way up that sacred mountain to meet our maker. If, if God is infinite, then there can't be, in, in my theology or in my approach to Judaism, there can't simply be one way of accessing the infinite. So within Judaism, one way of connecting is through ritual observance and what we would call Jewish law, as it's commonly termed, the Jewish law or the commandment. The way that we understand, or one way we in the Jewish world understand what law means, is it comes from the Hebrew word halacha, which, which means law. Its, its root meaning has nothing to do with law. Its root meaning has to do, it, it's literally to walk or to go. In other words, the, the way you walk in life, it's the way you live. It's your way into divine intimacy. That's halacha. That's a rabbinic, rabbinic term. The biblical terminology for the commandment is mitzvah, and it has the root word in it of tzava, which just means it's to command. But the rabbis say it's also related to the word for tzavta, which means to connect or to join. A bar mitzvah. Bat mitzvah, yes. is that the connecting point? Yes, ultimately, the way, one way that we are joining with or connecting with transcendence is through observance of sacred ritual. It can be formalized and it can be empty in content and it can have no inspiring dimension in your life. It can leave you empty. But the ultimate purpose of mitzvah, of commandment, is tzavta, is to connect, to connect with self, to connect with community, and to connect with the source of all of existence. So outside of the Jewish community specifically, it seems to me, and you correct me on this, that connecting with people of other faiths and traditions, would you say that's part of your observance or your worship? For me, it's central. It is part of 
my Jewish life. That hasn't been, I would say, very common even in today. It's more common among some. In the past, it wasn't even a potential because we weren't allowed. Mm. The only time we had dialogues like this in, in the past was when we were forced into a dialogue with, say, the church. And if we did well, we were in trouble. We, were, we did well, we were in trouble because <laughs> we did well. And if we did poorly, our community was in trouble because they would possibly yeah. leave. So for me, the call of interfaith, it's a meditation. It's a walking meditation. I believe in the words of what is called Mishnah. It's the legal, foundational legal tradition of the Jewish faith. It's written down about 1,800 years ago, or codified, I should say, by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And in the Mishnah itself, in this legal codification, there's a section called Pirkei Avot, which deals with more ethical or soulful matters, those that are beyond the mere letter or form of the law. And in chapter 4, it asks a question. It says, Benzoma is his name. And he asks, Ezehu Chacham, who is wise? He says, who is wise? And on the simple translation, it says, one who learns from every person. Well, mm. But when you analyze it even more in the Hebrew, that's a fine translation. Why is this call to learn about others so deeply ingrained in my heart? Because it's right there in the legal text. If you're seeking wisdom, who is a wise person? It's one who is learning. In the Hebrew, it's, a, it's in a participle, which is an ongoing sense. One who is learning from every person. And the Hebrew word there for person we have many words for person or man, mankind. It uses the most general or generic term. So it says to me, if I want wisdom, I have to be sure that I am learning in an ongoing manner from every person, not from every great rabbi or every saint or every sage, but from every human being in an ongoing, regular, committed, dedicated, and devoted practice. So how can I not seek the wisdom from the other manifestations of the divine in your faith tradition and the other faith traditions? That's why I'm so deeply called to this practice or this way. And such an interesting thing to me is that respect and that ongoing learning increases your spirituality, but does not seem to lessen at all your commitment to the tradition you're from. You know, this is a, it's a fascinating question you ask because my daughter recently asked me, do some of your studies of other faith traditions that have deep, deep wisdom, do they ever cause you to have questions or make you think? And the answer, honestly, is, and I say this with honor, pride, with a thank God, yes, it does. The Rebbe, of, the Kotzker Rebbe, Menachem Mendel of Kotz, from a couple of hundred years ago, he says, if you can't see God everywhere, you can't see God anywhere. Hmm. Now, I'm sure he's spinning over in his grave right now thinking, I didn't mean that, Joe. <laughs> but <laughs> Not that everywhere. But that's, <laughs> to me, everywhere means everywhere. And one of the names of God in Judaism by the rabbis is Hamakom, which means the place. Well, that means every place to me. The place that you are, the place that she is, the place that we are, 
is the place of the divine. God's name is called the place because every place you are is the place of the divine if you choose to receive it, if you choose to dwell within it, with it, and if you choose to allow it to dwell that place within you. So it does sometimes cause me questions, genuine, seeking, searching questions because I find it such a beautiful and honorable and wise teaching, yet sometimes it seems to be parting ways from some of my own tradition's wisdom. So I have to then learn to wrestle with how. And there's a beautiful teaching, again, from an Episcopal priest who's, who's no longer with us. But he wrote a book, several books. One of them was a cookbook called The Supper of the Lamb. And he has a teaching there that I have said publicly, boy, I wish the rabbis came up with this one because I bow down to this. He says, paradox is the only basket large enough to hold truth. Well, there I am. I am living in the paradox of divine wisdom that isn't linear, and thank God, that isn't black and white, thank God, that calls me in many different ways, but allows my root to remain rooted, and I blossom, and sometimes there may be cross-pollinization, but that's rich, and it's enriching, but it doesn't change the richness of my faith. I'm going to try and put words in your mouth, which is I'll just say the word. To me, it's love. Maybe there's a, a better word, but it's an openness to God speaking in, in various ways. Well, that's, that's a great question, actually. Fear. The Hebrew word for fear, one of the Hebrew words for fear, also means reverence. So we can, well, like, eat, yes, like to revere. Oh, in awe of. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that, that's a major wow, because sometimes we confuse the two. And we isolate the fear outside of a context of reverence. There is something awe-inspiring. But if it's grounded in reverence, it's very different. If your reverence is grounded in fear, that's a different engagement. I see reverence in my sacred explorations. I don't see fear of exploring the sacred. Because our Hebrew Bible, it's divided into three parts. The, what you would call in English the, the books of Moses, and then the prophets, and then the writings. That's how we define them. The book of Moses, or the, the, the five books of Moses, according to the rabbis, are called Torah. In, in Hebrew, that word also means instruction. So it's a much broader aspect or or dimension of law. It's there to instruct, not simply to limit or correct or guide you on this one path. It's not a linear term. It is instructional, and we can learn from. But like in all areas of learning, whether it's in science or music or art, there are layers. When you're in grammar school or in grade school and you learn about photosynthesis, it's not going to be as complex as you're learning as a biochemist. It's all rooted in the same. And I would say the same thing about the sacred. I have no fear. I only have reverence because of the infinite layers that are there before us that cannot, cannot uproot us. They can only deepen us. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be back in just a moment with more. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. When you talk about current events, do you ever feel like you have to tiptoe around people you know or maybe even family members because it seems like some topics are just like landmines? Can I even bring up 
this topic and have a civil discussion without starting a civil war within my family. Check out the podcast Top of Mind with award-winning journalist Julie Rose. Top of Mind dives into those tough topics, but it does it in a way that actually models how to have intelligent conversations, ask questions out of sincere curiosity, seeking to understand. Top of Mind is not trying to take a position and change your mind or persuade you. It is exploring. You'll come away with more empathy and clarity so that you can become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, even family member. Listen to Top of Mind wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with more In Good Faith. So I I have two or three questions that could each be at least an hour discussion. How do you recognize truth? Maybe maybe the, the reverence or the awe that you talked about is part of it, but when you're speaking with people or learning, is it some sort of sense? Is it a spiritual sense? Is it a, a physical perception? Is it, it's only one of the deep questions of the universe. Truth is, in that same Mishnah that we spoke of before, of Pirkei Avot, it speaks of silence. And there's nothing better for the body, better than for your being, than silence. And maybe my answer would be better if I were silent to this question, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> but what I will do ultimately, and in this case I'll quote you from another book that we have in our oral tradition. It's a beautiful teaching. It says, teach your tongue to say, I don't know. Hmm. Okay? If I had two, two themes to put on my tombstone, it would be learn from every person and teach your tongue to say, I don't know. Because that's a beautiful balance of learning and humility. And so I would say as far as truth, the only thing I can tell you I think there are potential ways that we will all misunderstand absolute truth because we are finite beings and truth is ultimately infinite and it's the mind of God and it is the soul of God. God is ultimately truth. But we seek with humble hearts and inspired minds to understand to our best ability that there is truth, yes. In Hebrew, there is no plural for the Hebrew word truth. It's just emes or emet if you speak modern Hebrew. It's all one. Yeah, it's one because it's telling you there is ultimately one truth. There might be many ways into that one truth, but there is absolutely one truth. But what's fascinating, the letters for the Hebrew word for truth, the three letters of the word are the beginning letter of the alphabet, the middle letter of the alphabet, and the last letter of the <laughs> alphabet. So what that tells me is not that I can gain or fully understand truth. It tells me, one, that there is truth, and two, that the beginning and the middle and the end of my focus in life should be to understand and seek to grow in that wisdom called truth. But I'm going to fail, and that's why I need to learn from others. So you talked about always learning in progress. The difference between being and becoming. Can you tell me, can you encapsulate that in a few sentences? Is that possible? Being is who we are. Becoming is who we have the potential to be. If we nurture, if we cultivate, if we tend, and ultimately allow that harvest to take place. But that comes from a discipline from a practice that comes from being a disciple which has the the root meaning of learning 
it, it, it's foundational to all of our traditions. There has to be learning. It's not just spirit. Spirit is necessary, but there has to be grounding in learning and grounding in wisdom. But I think we always have an aspect that is rooted in the being of all of existence, the being that is behind and that brings into life all of existence. We are rooted in. We're not that being, but we have an aspect of. That's who we are. But how that blossoms, how that becomes, how that is brought forth is different. But it's rooted in wisdom. It's rooted in the sacred. It's rooted in a discipline of learning about the source behind all of existence so we can become more of that aspect of who we ultimately are rooted in. So it's a grounding versus a blossoming. We are grounded but not static so that we can blossom into becoming. It is a beautiful, beautiful practice because it's always becoming. In fact, in the Bible, in, in Exodus chapter 3, when, what's your name? What's your name? Well, who do I tell them sent me when Moses says to the bush? Taking it on one level, that when it says, Ehia, Asher Ehia, I will be, also has that idea of God is not static. God is always becoming, not in terms of God, but in terms of availability to us. The essence of God is, I will be who I will be. Because as you grow in awareness of the I am, who ultimately is I am, not changing, not before, not after, always being, but to us, always becoming. That's the I will be is I will be more to you as you become more aware of me. Which I love that there's something for us to be about until we draw our last breath. I love that. You know what happens when a Jew, theoretically, again, this is what we're supposed to do that we're often not able to do. At our last breath, right before we die, you know what a Jew is supposed to say? It says we're supposed to say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As I leave here, I am entering into that absolute oneness so that I can become again, and end up in being again. But it ends with there is one. There is always one we can rely on and enter into, even when we're going beyond. That's the Shema? Yes. The first prayer that we teach a Jew when they're young is the Shema, to hear, to learn, to listen. The last prayer a Jew says on his lips is, I heard, Shema, I heard, I know there is one. And hopefully we can live our lives from the beginning moment of listening to our last moment of dying, surrender, surrendering into listening. I hope we can live in between those moments, listening to each other, learning from each other, walking together with each other, and ultimately making this world a more heavenly place because we need each other to do it. That was Steve speaking with Rabbi Joe Charnas, and I was so touched in that interview about how he talked about connection and how commandment comes from a couple of different words. There's a rabbinical term. There's also ancient Hebrew that gets used. But the root has to do with a way of walking and a way of connecting with God. And that's the kind of thing that I sit and ponder uh, every time I say to myself, well, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> 
And then I say to myself, or I can start saying to myself, well, do you want to connect with God? Mm-hmm. And yes, I probably do. And that whole idea of taking an action because of that ties in with what he called about not just to possess wisdom only, but to live a life practicing that wisdom. That's the reason it's given is to benefit us, not that we have in our mind a whole catalog of wise sayings, but that should show up in our daily walk. And I was also so impressed with his real desire to understand and connect with people of other faiths, which does not in any way lessen his commitment to his own tradition. And what I really liked about him talking about wisdom in this way is when he was talking about a wise person is one who is learning, who is in process. And he said that is learning from others in a regular and committed manner, which I thought was wise, of course, (laughs) but it related to Wendy Goldberg as well, I thought, and her ideas with the Tri-Faith Initiative of this proximity and being in relationship in these very committed ways, not a distance, but from a closeness, from a relationship, from commitment. There's always some conflict between these different religions of the book, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, but right now with what's happening with Israel and Gaza, both had just begun when we first interviewed Wendy and then later as we speak now. We're affected here in the States in our relations with other people because of their ties to this other faraway place where there's actual hand-to-hand conflict. And so her big-heartedness, I think, in understanding both that she has to and wants to support her tradition but is willing to meet with People And even she she and her friend were introducing their mothers at lunch. And boy, what are they going to talk about? I'm inspired by both of them. I know we all have been. And we're very grateful to Wendy Goldberg and Rabbi Joe Charnas for speaking with us. This episode was produced by Ashton Rowan and Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Leah King and Katerina Martinich. Our post-production sound designers are Mark Hansen, Daniel Phillips, and Carly Wilson. Is interfaith understanding important to you, especially after this discussion? If it is, please leave a comment or a review for In Good Faith on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. See our extended interviews from past guests on our YouTube channel. Find us at www.youtube.com slash at in hyphen good hyphen faith. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod, on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon right here in good faith. Oh,